Uh, go ahead and stick a finger in John chapter 10 this morning. We're going to be wrapping up that chapter today. John 10. A few months ago, I was in Austin for a small pastor's gathering, and there was a guest speaker at this event who was kind of like a keynote speaker, and he was there primarily talking about a book that he had written recently. And in this book, he basically regurgitated a lot of the work of a guy named Edwin Friedman. Uh, Edwin Freeman was a Jewish rabbi and also a psychologist. And, and, and this guy was, was upfront about this. He wasn't like plagiarizing or anything. He was very clear, hey, I'm, I'm taking some of Friedman's concepts and I'm kind of reworking them and repackaging them uh, specifically for people in pastoral ministry. And I, I found this really interesting because I'm aware of who this person, Edwin Freeman, is. And his name ha it just seems to come up over and over again. And you may be going, I've never heard of this guy in my life. But at least in the things that I'm reading and maybe podcasts I'm listening to and just things I come across, this, this name has just been coming up over and over again. Um, it's certainly not a household name, but in the world of psychology, uh, not like a super famous name, but also also not a new name. Uh, Friedman's been dead for at least 30 years. And so I've just kind of been fascinated by like, why all the sudden interest in the work of this deceased uh, late 20th century Jewish rabbi who also did a little uh, counseling on the side. Um, and I think the answer is this. It's because Friedman wrote a good deal about what's called systems theory. It's the concept that we all exist in a variety of relational systems, whether in your nuclear family or in your workplace or in your school. We, we all exist in these networks of relationship. And unhealthy systems are largely driven by anxiety. They're driven by uh, the most anxious people in the system, but then also by the way that those persons' anxiety fuels the anxiety of other people as well. Friedman, in particular, focused on leadership and how leaders allow their own anxiety to spill over onto their employees or coworkers. And you've probably experienced this, whether directly or indirectly from a leader at some point in your life, uh, a leader who is maybe a bully or is coercive or who is constantly speaking negatively about other people behind the scenes or who seems to be acutely aware of all the ways that they have been wronged by other people, but, but the optimal leader, according to Friedman, is the quote-unquote non-anxious leader. To use his, his wording, the, 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 the true, like, um, steadfast, um, heroic-type leader is the leader who is a non-anxious presence. And isn't that true? <laughs> Isn't that true? Who would you rather follow? Like the leader who's constantly wringing his hands or who's perpetually indecisive or who's always coming down hard on somebody, all of which are signs of anxiety. Um, or the leader um, who knows where they're going, who is confident in his or her decisions, who's willing to do hard things, 
who's largely unfazed by criticism. Yeah, like, that's who we want to follow, isn't it? We want that kind of person. We want our leaders to be non-anxious. So it's not surprising that in the age we live in, that suddenly Friedman's work would be rediscovered and that people would be talking about it because we live in an age of anxiety, don't we? We live in an age of anxiety. It's at epidemic levels. All of us deal with it on some level, whether you're watching the news or you're on social media or you're listening to podcasts. It it can seem like everything is just going, ah, right? Like, oh, no, what are we going to do? I mean, that is our culture, is it not? Just whatever outlet you're going to, it's just like everything is on fire all the time. And everything is like is is getting laid on top of you and is demanding a response of some kind from you. We've talked before about the fact that the Internet, more more than at any other point in human history, has, has at least made us aware of every terrible and atrocious thing that's going on around the world. I don't know that there are necessarily more terrible and atrocious things going on around the world than ever before, but we are certainly more aware of all of those things than ever before. And what the problem with that is that we're aware of more of that than ever before, and so as a result, we're more aware than ever of our powerlessness to actually do something about all of these things. Anybody in here fixed uh, the wildfires in the West yet, by the way? Get on that, man. Get on it. What are you going to do? Right? So, so, like, our culture, our media, like, just everything seems to be constantly screaming at us. And when we get caught up in the anxious emotions of other people or in the anxious emotions of the system itself, and as a result respond with our own anxiety, the system feeds itself. It just self-perpetuates. It's a vicious circle. So Friedman says the only thing that stops that cycle is the person who is truly non-anxious and who can't be controlled by other people's emotions and who is able to do the right thing no matter what other people are screaming at them. What's interesting, though, is that as you read Friedman's description of a non-anxious leader, you can't help but think, I can't help but think, well, that sounds a lot like Jesus. (laughs) Like, and, and he's a Jew, this guy's a Jewish rabbi, he's not a Christian. He's not writing from that, uh, that worldview or that lens. But when you read this sort, of, this sort of archetypal person he describes, it really does sound like the Jesus that is presented to us in the pages of Scripture. And I want to make the case today that Jesus' acute sense of personal mission and his willingness to disturb the peace, as it were, And to wade into conflict, especially in Jerusalem here in John's gospel, Uh, he's doing all that for the sake of his mission, that his confidence as well, like going all the way to the cross, in other words, his non-anxiety, I want to make the case that that was not simply the result of just some personal character traits that he happened to have, but rather it was the direct result of his unity with the Father. Because I think this is part of the case that John's gospel is making to us. There is a sense in which we could step back and go, well, he's Jesus, right? Right? He's Jesus. So, of course, he's not anxious. 
But he's also 100% God, 100% man, right? This, this hypostatic union that we talk about. But Jesus is not alone. Jesus is in continual union with the Father. And so here is an anchor statement to hopefully kind of guide our time together today. And, and my prayer is that this, by the end, makes some level of sense to us. God's unity is the basis for my own. God's unity is the basis for my own. My own external unity with other people and my own sense of internal unity as well. Let me read our text to us today. This is John 10. We're going to wrap up the chapter, uh, verses 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan and came to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The word of the Lord. Uh, this week we find Jesus still in Jerusalem. Uh, he's still wrestling in public discourse with the Jews, and things are still not good. In fact, I would say things are deteriorating. They're devolving. The Jewish leaders are still wanting to arrest him, and even in these public exchanges, several attempts on his life have been made, all of which he has somehow escaped uh, in, I, I would say, somewhat mysterious ways. But all of these like attempts at stoning him, he has somehow walked away from. And, and where we pick up today, it's wintertime, it's during the Feast of Dedication, uh, which is more commonly known to us as Hanukkah. Now, if you're not familiar, Hanukkah is the festival of lights, right? Instead of one day of presents, they have eight crazy nights. That's about all I know about Hanukkah. That's Adam Sandler by the way. 
That's free. No, actually, Hanukkah is, uh, as, as Scripture calls it, the Feast of Dedication, or maybe more specifically, the Feast of Rededication. Um, what actually happened was, in the 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what's known as the intertestamental period, there is a point in time where Jerusalem is taken by an outside force known as the Seleucids. And the Seleucids come in, they set up shop, and they force the temple to be used for pagan rituals. Uh, that all is until there is a Jewish revolution uh, led by a group known as the Maccabees. And the Maccabees are able ultimately to retake the temple, uh, to reinstitute Hebrew worship in the temple. And as a result, the temple comes to be rededicated to the worship of God. That's what Hanukkah is all about. And that is what's happening here in the middle of our text today um, as Jesus is walking in Solomon's colonnade in the temple in Jerusalem. The people find Jesus there, and, then they, and they implore him to, quote, speak plainly. They're saying, tell us if you are the Christ. Um, I don't think they're genuine. I think the intention really is to hear him say, I am the Messiah, so that there's just more fuel on the fire for their claims of blasphemy. Um, but also in their defense, Jesus has not done that explicitly. Like Jesus has not had like an I'm Batman moment at any point in this gospel, right? There's not been a point where he has said, hey, everybody, listen up. I am the Messiah. Now, what Jesus has actually done is even greater than that. And honestly, even more blasphemous than that, potentially, because what he has basically done is he said, I am God. Not just I'm the Messiah, not just I'm the new David who's come to set up a new uh, Hebrew kingdom, but, but I am God. Uh, and, and, and so he's going to do that even more explicitly and does do that even more explicitly in today's text. And yet when people come along and go, tell us who you are, Jesus' response to questions like this, his response has largely been not to try to bear witness about himself. His response has not been to say, well, let me tell you who I am. His response has really been more to allow other people to speak for him, uh, namely John the Baptist. Like John the Baptist is the first to say, behold, the Lamb of God, right? Like John is the one who comes before him, who points to Christ and says, this is the one. And, and, but then also Jesus says, look at the things that I've done, right? He points to what John calls his signs, like these miraculous things, water into wine, uh, all of the healings that have taken place thus far, the feeding of the 5,000, like these incredible things that Jesus has done. He says, look at the good work that I have done because it testifies about me as well. But then also he appeals to the Father. He says, God bears witness about his identity because Jesus couldn't have done the things that he had done without God's power. Look at verse 24. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Right? This isn't the first time this conversation has come up and Jesus has said, well, what does John say? Right? And what do my works say? And what does God say? Here he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But then notice what he tells them, verse 26. But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says the problem here isn't that I haven't told you. The problem is you don't recognize my voice. You don't recognize my voice. You are not my sheep. Which is a continuation of the first part of chapter 10 that we spent the last two weeks talking about. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and and listen to it because hopefully it sheds some light on what's going on here. But one of the things I can't help but notice is that Jesus seems completely non-anxious about people rejecting him. He doesn't seem to approach the people as a desperate salesman, which doesn't always characterize the posture of the American church when it comes to evangelism. By the way, sometimes we do approach evangelism as desperate salespeople, and we can be extremely anxious about people rejecting what we are selling to the point where um, many of us have had moments in our lives where we have been completely unwilling to even tell another person about Jesus out of the fear that we will be rejected or that it will be awkward. We're anxious. In fact, our anxiety over even the possibility of being rejected leads us often to stay silent. But Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered by this um, because he knows those who are his sheep will hear his voice and respond to his voice. I was thinking about the rich young ruler. Um, If you remember the story of the rich young ruler, uh, this wealthy young man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to obtain eternal life? Right? And Jesus says, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. And the story goes that the guy walks away saddened because what Jesus has asked him to do is just more than he's willing to do. And yet the thing that I've always been amazed with is Jesus's non-anxiety in that exchange. Uh, Jesus does not go, whoa, 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 hang on. That came out wrong, right? Let me, no, you misunderstand what I'm saying. I, I don't mean literally go sell everything. You know, he doesn't do anything like that. Jesus says, do this. The guy says no, basically, and walks away, and Jesus lets him walk away. There is no running after him. There is no trying to, like, reword it. Nothing. And, and that is just incredibly fascinating to me. It is the non-anxious presence, and it is rooted in this union with God, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that his sheep know his voice and respond to his voice. And yet that often does not characterize us, right? Often we are balls of anxiety. I was realizing this morning, even as I was preparing for this and was on my way up here, that I was anxious about today. Um, Not necessarily because of anything I'm talking about, but I I knew uh, John was going to be out today. I knew Justin was going to be out today. um, And I knew some folks were sick and folks were out of town. I was like, man, no one's going to be at church today, except for you guys. (laughs) And I'm like, man, no one's going to be here. Uh, It's going to feel like no one's there. Everybody's going to look around and go, man, no one's here today. And everybody's going to go, well, why am I here today if no one else is here? And and then no one's going to come back. And then the whole thing's going to blow up. And and then I'm going to be homeless, right? (laughs) Which is not true and is completely illogical. And yet that's how we think, isn't it? And I've counseled with enough of you guys to know I'm not the only one that thinks that way. There there is something within us that 
and, and it is our sin nature, like it's not a secret, but there's something within us that just naturally says God is not good, God is not in control, and everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And it shouldn't be surprising that we feel that way based on what we talked about in our culture earlier. Like, what we are immersing ourselves in often are the kinds of things that are screaming at us, oh no! The things we are often discipling ourselves in and, and, and like centering ourselves in are things that breed that way of thinking, I think. First takeaway for today, God's work is the basis for union with Christ, not our own. God's work is the basis for union with Christ, not our own. Notice that Jesus says that for those who are truly his sheep, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of God's hand. In other words, as we saw last week, if you are his sheep, it is not simply because you have done something. It's more because God has done something in saving you. God is the one who has brought you into the fold of Christ. This new nation, this new um, flock that is being brought together in and through the work of Christ. And because it is primarily based in God's work, he's not only the one who brings you in, he's the one who keeps you in the fold. Since you didn't become Christ's sheep because you were good enough or moral enough or smart enough, you also won't lose your position as one of his sheep because you are unable to somehow maintain it. So God's work is the basis for our union with Christ, not my own, not your own. So let me reiterate this. Jesus' non-anxiety is a result of his unity with the Father. It is not simply because he is Jesus. He clearly needs unity with the Father because he is a part of the Trinity. He is a part of this eternal, coexisting, relational Godhead. He is never on his own. He is never by himself. And that's why he has used all of this language that is akin to, I only do what I see the Father doing. At no point does Jesus claim to be separate or different or distinct or individual from God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. He wants to bring us into that same state of unity with God. Later in John 17, he prays for all of his followers that they, quote, may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that we would be united to God in the way that he is united to God. So in other words, Jesus wants us to experience the same kind of union that he has with the Father. 
because he wants us, the church, and our unity with God to be yet another sign of his lordship. To be yet another indicator of his power and his grace. That people would see our unity, not just with each other, that's secondary, but that people would see our unity with God and that they would believe in Christ as a result. And the complete relief, the like the weight off our shoulders of this situation is that it is not solely based on my good work. It is not solely based on me behaving or acting right. It is based squarely on Christ and his work, on his righteousness, on his union with the Father. Now, Jesus then nails home this union with God by making this bold statement in verse 30. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. We've talked about that uh, statement in previous weeks, but this is really where he says it. I and the Father am one. In other words, I am God. You want me to say that I am the Messiah? I've already told you who I am. I've already shown you who I am. John told you who I am. But let me just like up the ante a little bit. I'm not simply some human king that has come to restore Israel. I and the Father are one. And, and this is clearly what the people hear him saying. I am God. I am Yahweh. By the way, foundational verse here for Trinitarian theology, right? Somehow, God the Father and Jesus Christ are separate, and yet they are one. It's a mystery. It's a divine mystery. Let me ask you this. What does unity in the church look like to you? Like, like if, if I were to just like get you to dream for a moment about what does it look like for the church to be unified? What does that look like to you? When you think of that concept, what images come to your mind? Well, more than likely, you see people getting along, right? You see people getting along. You see people not constantly embroiled in disagreement and dispute. You probably don't see 10 million different Christian denominations Right? You, you probably see churches that don't constantly have leadership scandals. You probably see uh, racial diversity on display in the church. You, you probably see socioeconomic diversity on display in the church. You probably see agreement on what the gospel is and who Jesus is and what the mission of the church is. But notice this. If we want that... If you want that kind of vision of life together with other Christians, it cannot be based on us pursuing our own agenda. And it cannot be based, and this is counterintuitive, but it cannot be based on us simply like trying to get along with other people. Or, or, or us trying to figure out gimmicks to increase diversity in the church. Instead, it has to begin first with each of us as individuals coming into true union with Christ. If it is not based in or rooted in our individual union with Christ, and then all of these people who are individually united with Christ coming together, it will not happen. Because that vision of church unity, which, which I, I'm just going to call the togetherness vision of church unity, cannot begin to happen unless we are first united to God through Christ. 
The only way we can be united together is for the basis of that union to be Christ crucified and resurrected himself. And that is what God wants first. Not just for us to get along, not just for us to be more diverse, but for us to be truly united to him. That is what Jesus prays for. And, and I believe that if that really happens, then the things that flow from that are beautiful. So the basis of that union cannot be a church organization or a dynamic pastoral leader or even a compelling vision or mission. It has to be the person and work of Christ alone. And here's why. The only way we become more united together is for each of us to increasingly look less and less like ourselves and more and more like Jesus. And the only way that happens is if we are seeking to continually die to ourselves so that we might be continually reborn in the likeness of Christ. Guys, Jesus, through his humility and obedience to the Father, is not just showing us how to be more moral people or how to behave better. He is showing us how to die and what it looks like to live in union with the Father. Second takeaway for today, the more we are truly united to Christ, the more we can be truly united to each other. The more we are united to Christ, the more we will want the same things, because the more we will all want what he wants. The less we will seek after our own agendas, our own plans, our own schemes. The more we're united to Christ, the more we will sacrificially love our neighbors because that is what he has done for us. That is what he's modeled for us. The more we're united to Christ, the more the church can truly be a place of refuge or a quote-unquote safe space for people. And the more we're truly united to Christ, the less anxious we will all be because we realize that we aren't in this relationship with him simply based on our own goodness or our own efforts, and no one can snatch us out of it. I was thinking this morning uh, about a Sandra McCracken song uh, from years ago called Shelter. And here's a lyric from that song. In the arms of a good father, you can go in the deep water. And I love, I love that image of safety. It's like if I'm, if I'm with my father and I know my father is good and that I'm, I'm literally wrapped in his arms and he's strong enough to hold me that, that even when we wade into situations that if it's just me on my own, it's precarious at best or deadly even at best. But, but, but I know that because he has wrapped his arms around me and because he is good, then these potentially precarious situations seem like non-issues because I trust him. Like, like, what are we moving towards if we aren't moving towards a greater place of trust in him? 
Not just a greater place of understanding where, man, I, I understand him more now, or I get it more now, and so as a result of me understanding it more, I trust him more. But no, no, no. Just simply because of what he has done for us through Christ. We see his goodness on display in the gospel itself. He is a good father, and as a result, we can go into the deep water. When you are united to him, the things the world tells us we should be anxious about dissipate because we recognize that he's got it. And he holds us. Now that can get cheesy real quick, can it? Because the next thing you know, there's footprints on the beach, right? (laughs) But that doesn't mean it's untrue. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't find ourselves in this state of complete reliance on him and his grace. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. This uh, actually, I'm sorry, this comes from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, not our text today. He speaks to this issue. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, meaning non-believers, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Guys, that's what I've been talking about the whole time. That when we find that union... That when we seek first union with God through Christ, that as Jesus' words in Matthew say, when we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all the things that we're anxious about will become non-issues. Don't miss that instruction. It isn't just Jesus saying, hey, stop being anxious. He is telling us what to do instead. Seek God's kingdom. Make space in your life. Make time in your day to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Paul builds on this in Philippians 4. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what am I to do? It's not just, hey, quit being anxious, but instead... Connect with God in prayer, is what Paul's saying. Connect with God in worship. And the good Father who holds you in his arms will guard your heart and your minds. From what? From anxiety. From fear. 
And how's he doing that? Paul says he will do that in Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus is the door of the sheep. Listen, aside from Christ, we have every reason to be anxious and depressed and in disunity. Why wouldn't we be? Look at our world. Our world is on fire. Like, that's not fake. That's not a facade. That's true. What should characterize the Christian is this, like, curious and conspicuous non-anxiety in the face of our world that is on fire. But if we are not in Christ, if we are not seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, if we are not prostrating ourselves before him in prayer, in other words, if we are not seeking to immerse ourselves in the things of Jesus, then this cycle will just perpetuate. And the only way I know to do that stuff, guys, is to truly begin to restructure your life around Christ rather than around yourself. Like, I'm not talking about just some, some spiritual disciplining types of add-ons to your day. You know, I just need to add a little bit of prayer today. But, but no, it's, it's like literally restructuring your life so that those things are, as we often say, the orienting center. They become the thing that everything else revolves around. Right? Like connecting with our Father through Christ in the ways that he's given us. Through prayer, through his word, through fasting, through the study of scripture, through meditation, through silence, through solitude. Things that believers have been doing for centuries. And yet for most of us, if we do any of those things, we, we try to just pile them on top of everything else. Without any functional, like central change. On my way to church this morning, I realized that I was, I was having these ridiculous thoughts, and I was anxious about these things. And, and normally, I, you know, I've had some time in, in the Word and with Him on Sunday mornings early, and then when I get here, I just get busy, like, doing things, getting ready. And, man, when I got here this morning, I, I came and sat right there, and I lit these candles, and I spent just 15 minutes just in prayer, I, because I recognized, <laughs> like, how in the world... Can I, I get up here and tell you guys what you should be doing if this isn't something that I'm really willing to do as well, right? Like, if I just get busy with whatever's going on and, and forget about him uh, and then just try to add him in wherever it, it's convenient for me, then, then that's counter to what I'm saying this morning, right? Like, like I literally had to stop and, and, like, put other things aside and go, this is more important. He is more important than my agenda or my list of tasks. Now, I'm not saying that I did that and all of a sudden everything was better and I'm cured and it's not a problem anymore. But what I'm saying is, is if we are unwilling to truly give him that place of prominence and priority, things are just going to spiral and continue to devolve. So, in Paul's language... This is us bringing everything to him in prayer and thanksgiving rather than trying to make our own way and figure things out ourselves. And, and so I just want to give a challenge to you guys. I think one step to take starting this week is to commit yourselves to a daily time of prayer. Now, some of you, I have no doubt, just kind of pray throughout the day as needs come about. You think about it. That's awesome. But is there a space in your day where you are truly seeking to have the rest of your day kind of revolve around this time. 
Like, like this thing that's so integral that if it doesn't happen, then it really does throw everything else off. That's, that's actually kind of what we're going for here. And, and I'm thinking here more about quality than quantity. Like, it, it really doesn't matter if your prayer time is 30 minutes or an hour if it's not quality. So we want to we wanna go deep. And, and I want to just give us a starting place this morning, and I'm, I'm closing with this. I, I just want to share a prayer with you. Um, the, the Lord's Prayer is obviously a great place to start. Um, Jesus holds that up to us as the model. That's a big part of my prayer life every day. But I came across this prayer from uh, the British pastor John Stott recently. And uh, this is a morning prayer. And I wanted to just share it with you. It's actually in our liturgy this morning. We'll put it up here on the screen. Um, and I'd love to close the message today by us just praying this out loud together. Um, this is a Trinitarian morning prayer, recognizing who God is, uh, who we are, and, and what we need from him. And uh, I would love to just challenge you to incorporate this or something like this into your daily rhythm and, and really seek to place prayer at the center of your daily existence. So would you join me as we pray this together? Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. Amen.